Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, my name is Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And welcome to episode six of Apocryphal Australia. We're going full steam ahead now, Stephen, aren't we? Well, I mean, you've got the wealth of material that we have had our hands with all the the fantastic places and people and events that we've got to, to draw upon. It's no wonder we've got lots of material. You're hitting every nail on the head. But before we get into our stories for today, I think it's time to have a look at correspondence. Stephen, have you got any? We had a, a few queries, um, people inviting us to look into various things, but I thought but these ones caught my eye for, for one reason or another. We had a letter from Mr uh, Giles Tripper, who was wondering if we'd heard of his grandfather who drove from Sydney to Melbourne. I'm not really sure what to make of that one because he doesn't really go into details, but I'm going to follow it up and just to see if there's anything in it. But um, Let's just see if it's unusual enough to rate yeah, a mention on yeah. Apocryphal At the Australia. moment, just driving from Sydney to Melbourne, not a lot going for it, but who knows? And what's next in your mailbag, Stephen? This is a, a kind of an odd one. This is from a Mr Keith Soap Dispenser from Malarkey <laughs> in New South Wales. He wanted us to look into his great-grandfather, Alan Soap Dispenser, who gave his name to a wonderful invention, the Allen Key. Right. So I, I think I might look into that one a little bit more closely just because it has some possibilities, but oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel that the name just doesn't ring true, and, and I've got a funny feeling Allen Keys were invented overseas in England or somewhere anyway. We've got to be wary of these people making false claims, Steve. Like, we're about the truth here. Yeah, I oh know. And and lastly, a, a Miss Alison Humber, who suggested we should look into more artistic types, particularly writers, and in particular female writers, and especially those named Alison. Um, <laughs> and if they have the surname Humber, so much the better. So we, we might sort of have a look at that, but I've, I've got a feeling that might just be a, a bit of shameless self-interest there. Uh, she's certainly the one to make the claim, though. Well, yeah, I mean, by all means, Alison, go ahead and make that name and we will look at you. Excellent. All right, Stephen, I've got a little bit of correspondence. It's not people trying to help us really with our research or with some leads, but I've had this email from Renzo Tolshaw who upbraids us for what he calls counterfactual narratives. And he says we're even pushing into alternative realities. Now, Mm. look, no offence, Renzo, but we take your comments as just so much blither-blather. It, uh, while we're fans of the multi-universe theory, those who say that our findings diverge from commonly held accounts, well, they're simply not looking hard enough. Research, research, research is what apocryphal Australia is all about. And if we can't find what we want with bucket loads of research, well, we simply do more. And if I sound a little bit hot under the collar, well, that's just because I put Denko rub on my scarf and that's a foolish thing to do, but there you have it. And before we really dive into today's stories, I've got a a hand up here, mea culpa, I've got a couple of corrections going back a few episodes. Uh, I think it was in the last episode, I inadvertently said elephant when I should have said elephant seal. 
<laughs> so sorry about the um, confusion out there. Now, our subject that I was talking about could never have eaten a whole elephant while riding a bicycle, obviously. And the episode before that, I think I may have said she applied pressure to the wound when I meant to say she applied pressure to the hound. Now, it's an easy mistake to make. My bad. Yeah, it is an easy mistake. And don't worry, listeners, we'll have a word to the staff. (laughs) All right, Steve, it is time to dive in. Another jam-packed episode as usual. So what's first on your plate? Today, I thought we would have a look at an interesting place, the Tyne Street Studio, one of the famous locations of, of the Australian music industry. The Tyne Street Studio is in Parramatta, Sydney, and it was the place where some of Australia's most forgettable music was recorded. Indeed, so bad was its output that it became almost legendary in music circles. A particularly bad recording will often be noted as a real Tyne Street effort that. The Tyne Street Studio was established immediately after the Second World War by a small recording company, Acme Sound. The building itself had once been a cutlery factory. The first manager was Walter Haskins, a renowned kazoo player and ladies' man. The studio had some success, with a long-running government public information contract producing 78 RPM government records covering such items as Athlete's Foot, It's a Load of Rot, and Swedes, The Forgotten Vegetable. In the mid-1950s, Acme Sound sold the studio to Grammar Sound Productions, a new company set up to specialise in comedy recordings. Unfortunately, the comics they chose were almost all physical comedians. The antics of Talbot and Martin and their pratfalls were little appreciated by the public via the medium of the new long-playing records, and Cicero and McNoodle's brand of knockabout hijinks were, according to the music critic of the Sydney Morning Herald, 40 minutes of meaningless crashes, exclamations and boings. A desperate attempt to salvage the company via the recording of the Dos Santos juggling troupe was a dismal failure. In 1960, the studio was sold to the fledgling High Top Records. The owner and new manager of the was ex-mechanic and lottery winner Roy Creamery. With stars in his eyes and no talent to burn, he coaxed a never-ending series of groups and singers into his studio. His first recording was the Mooncats with How High Is My Love. It sold 13 units. Undaunted, he dragged three passers-by into the studio and dubbed them the Cruise Tones. Their version of the classic Chuck Berry song, Sweet Little Sixteen, was notable mainly for the fact that none of the three singers started or finished the verses and choruses together. The next eight years saw singers like Johnny Swan, with an out-of-tune version of Happy Birthday, Thelma Hunt, offering a yodelled version of Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, and Guy Fontana, a stumbling crooner whose best released was a mumbled number called I'm Better Looking Than I Sound. In 1968, Roy Creamery's money had just about run out, but that didn't stop him putting together and recording psychedelic bands such as Chrome Chocolate, Ten Ton Tigers and Love Wagons. None succeeded. In 1969, as a final gesture, Roy Creamery packed the studio with as many of his protégés and creditors as possible and ringmastered a vast choral attack on Walsing Matilda, complete with bagpipes, sitars, air raid sirens, sousaphones and an unplanned dogfight. In technical terms, it was a disaster, but everyone agreed it summed up Roy Creamery's whole approach. Mysteriously, the Tyne Street studio burned to the ground the very next day. 
all copies of the Walsing Matilda session were lost. Roy Creamery currently hosts the Midnight to Dawn slot on Bernie, Tasmania, local radio. Well, another lost wonder from Australia's past. These are the things that deserve to be brought to light. And they will be. Now, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, you have a real treat for those listeners with an interest in mathematics. I really don't think we've delved into this area before. Exactly, Stephen. It is an area that I'm not 100% au fait at, but because of the research, I'm ready to present all about Audrey Hinf, 1923 to 1991. Audrey Hinf was perhaps Australia's greatest ever self-taught mathematician and the only Australian ever to win the P. Graffin Prize, which she achieved to some acclaim, mostly hers, in 1963. Audrey Hinf was the daughter of Horatio and Olive Hinf of Rockhampton, Queensland, the famed duo of Whoops, Where's My Knickers notoriety, their review being a long-running hit right across the country, as well as being the inspiration for a long-forgotten rock opera quadruple album in 1971 by the much-feared underground psychedelic band The Dreaming and Sizes. Audrey Hinf was also the older sister of Sholto Hinf, the only person ever to swim across the Tasman Sea from west to east. Or so he says, anyway. Throughout Audrey Hint's childhood and early adult life, she showed few signs of mathematical talent. Much like everyone of her time, she could add, subtract, do long division, make change and calculate the area of a circle in her head, but it was only in 1953, after she was taken ill and rushed to hospital with a case of suspected Kraft cheese disease, that her abilities came to the fore. While in hospital, the initial diagnosis of Kraft G's was discounted, but Audrey Hint slipped into a coma, perhaps on principle and perhaps because of the way a poorly secured bedside oxygen bottle fell and landed on her head. When Audrey Hinf regained consciousness four years later, and after several hospital staff were discharged for wrapping themselves up in aluminium foil and telling her that it was the year 2200, it was declared that she was in perfect health apart from some muscle wastage and a newly developed exaggerated startle reflex. The specialist who took on her case was Ingmar Rasmussen, neurologist, psychiatrist, behavioural scientist and the nosy neighbour in the 1961 sitcom My Favourite Architect. The ill-fated starring vehicle for a sadly diminished Buster Barrymore of the famous plumbing family. Rasmussen came to realise that when Audrey Hinf was taken by surprise in any way, say creeping up from behind and shouting boo, or by jamming her with a pin, or offering her a job that paid the same as a man, her body would convulse and she'd fling her arms in the air. The exaggerated startle reflex. Immediately after this, though, in a momentary trance-like state, if pen or chalk were put in her hand, she would furiously scrawl out a mathematical proof of astonishing complexity, a proof that she would later not be able to fully understand. The fact that no one else was able to understand these proofs either didn't faze her, or, or faze Ingmar Rasmussen, who became her manager, and even had a new business card made where he dubbed himself Mathematical Impresario. Only the third known use of that title. This turned out to be the beginning of a groundbreaking few years, where Audrey Hinf tackled some of the most infamous mathematical conundrums of the day, despite having no previous contact at all with higher mathematics, number systems, or even calculus. 
Over the next five years, in quick succession, Audrey Hinf solved the Spandau Paradox, 1954, the Horsegraben Problem, 1955, the Min-Skeely Conjecture, 1956, and then again in 1957, and in a ferment of exaggerated, startling outcomes, the Hooli Dooley series, Orland's a volume series problem, the five vertices problem, and most famously, Von Trapp's infinite loop conjecture, all in 1958, the last of which gained her the P. Graffen Prize, an award that was unknown before Ingmar Rasmussen announced the achievement to the press. The fact that no one in the mathematical community had heard of any of the problems that Audrey Hinf had solved, nor could they look at her alleged proofs without laughing, meant nothing to her or Rasmussen. Together they toured the country after developing a stage show where she would solve any calculation put to her by an audience member. It was only mildly successful as her answers were written on a huge blackboard in a notation of her own invention, one that eschewed conventional numbers. The act folded when Ingmar Rasmussen was set upon outside the Royal Theatre, Orange, New South Wales, by a gang of rogue mathematicians who'd been waiting for him at the stage door and who were intent on laying the boot in. He suffered extensive injuries and they left him in an acute condition. Not long after, Audrey Hint found Ingmar Rasmussen in bed with a statistician who was renowned for insights into Bayesian analysis. His protestations that he was only admiring her bell curve went unheeded by Audrey Hinf, who left him and the field of mathematics forever. Audrey Hinf never married and lived a quiet life as a jam inspector in Bishino, Tasmania, apart from a few months in 1980 when she was mistaken for the lost heir to the throne of an Eastern European country and had a madcap series of adventures. She died in 1991, aged. So Ingmar Rasmussen was found a bit with a, a statistician. Oh, yes, and uh, as they say in mathematical circles, half his luck. Or 0.5. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> Very good, Steve. We, we could keep up the mathematical japery forever, but maybe not. And, Stephen, it's over to you. Yes, Michael, an, an event this time. I know we've, we've looked at lots of people and places, but it's nice to look at a, a bit of an event Every year in September, the small town of Pavlova becomes the focus of attention as the annual running of the bull ants occurs. The strange ritual has been performed for decades and has become something of a tourist attraction for the region. Each year, fierce tiger bull ants are released into the main street of Pavlova. The confused insects are then goaded by groups of brightly dressed young men who saunter and meander through the streets with the ants in hot pursuit. This is not a spectacle for the faint-hearted, the literally-livered, or the sissy-splained. Aggravated bull ants are not easily controlled, and of late it has been deemed necessary to erect barriers some two centimetres high to contain the enraged ants. The young men who run with the ants face many dangers as they lead the bull ants through the town and out onto the footy oval. Many a young man has fallen in the street and been viciously mauled by packs of ants. Participants are asked to sign a waiver that frees the township from any legal claims that injured runners may make. Once the still enraged but by now tired and confused bull ants are safely behind the solid steel enclosures erected on the footy oval especially for the purpose, the young men sit back and drink copious quantities of beer. It's said that the man who manages to entice the biggest bull ant into the enclosure will win a huge cash prize, 
but this has not occurred as yet owing to the similar size of all the ants and an unwillingness to examine them too closely, enraged as they are. Once the bull ants are securely held, they're released and the town goes about its business until the same time the following year when it all happens again. It's been described as one of the most pointless events held in modern-day Australia, and with good reason. What a spectacle, though. But I can't help thinking, what a health and safety nightmare. The insurance premiums must be enormous. But still, this is the sort of thing that makes Australia Australia and makes for a pretty good documentary, I'm sure. It would. And it's been wonderful for the uh, the economy of Pavlova, what with the young men in their gaudy costumes. They've kept many a dress shop open and running in the town of Pavlova over the years. Well, more power to Pavlova is what I say. Now then, I understand you've got a, a tale about some siblings, Michael. Some siblings indeed, but also this is one of our stories that comes straight out of Australia's great gold rush period. So full of juiciness that we're often spoiled for choice. But I've concentrated on the town of Judge's Rest and some of its major, more renowned inhabitants. Judge's Rest was one of the hundreds of townships and settlements to spring up in the Victorian gold rush. It was situated about 15 kilometres northwest of Ballarat and it was named after two brothers, Ivo and Edward Judge, who sank a shaft in the area in 1855. The Judge brothers had arrived in Australia only days earlier from Salisbury, UK, having left their youngest brother, Abishag, to take care of their 14 sisters and their elderly but sprightly parents. But after three days of intermittent effort, the Judge brothers gave up gold mining and instead opened a combined tavern and hostelry, Judge's Rest, which became famous throughout the district for its charming combination of food poisoning and violence. This tavern became famous for brawling and it attracted both participants and spectators keen to see bodily affray. A township rapidly grew in this heated atmosphere of sweat, gold and blood. By 1856, Judges Rest, the area, boasted 27 public houses, 14 boxing rings, a full-size jousting arena and a Greco-Roman wrestling stadium, featuring multiple saunas. All this for a permanent population of only 200 people. In 1857, an assembly of local citizens declared that the settlement of Judges Rest needed a town council. With a dazzling leap of logic, they decided that voting was too inconclusive, so a free-for-all fracas was held in the main street. The last six brawlers left standing, unaided, were hailed as, obviously, the men for the job. When the largest survivor, Norbert Slumsh, headbutted his nearest rival, he was unanimously accepted as mayor. Norbert Slumsh was universally popular, and in his first three months of office, he enacted several ordinances designed to take violence out of the sporting arena and back into the streets where it belongs. In his own way, a forward-thinking individual, he insisted that all public officials in the town of Judge's Rest had to be trained in first aid as well as self-defence. However, Norbert Slumsh was run out of town when he was found coaching Tyros how to hit below the belt. Judge's Rest staggered through the rest of the decade of the 1850s. Bigger and better spectacles were organised, ranging from 15 men fighting in a barbed wire cage to vast games of British bulldog, sometimes involving thousands of participants. 
But it came to pass that in 1860, after a particularly vigorous round of tag-team groin-kneeing, a stranger came to town. He was immediately noted as different, mostly because of the black mask he wore. His first words, as he lit from his coal-black steed, were, I have come for vengeance. Naturally, he became known as the masked horse rider, and thus began a day unparalleled in the annals of Biffo. This avenging stranger was unstoppable. He single-handedly took on scores of judges' rests finest and bested them all. He was a master of the uppercut, an expert in the full Nelson, a supreme eye-gouger. He knew all the tricks of street fighting, as well as barroom brawling and general public disorder. He could, and often did, fight with one hand tied behind his back. By sunset, all of the denizens of Judge's Rest had fled before the wrath of the masked horse rider. The only ones left were the original inhabitants of the town, the brothers Ivo and Edward Judge. The masked horse rider burst into the by-now battle-scarred tavern, still owned by the brothers, and confronted them when he revealed he was their younger brother, Abishag, the one left at home to raise the 14 sisters and elderly but sprightly parents. There were no witnesses to the thrashing Abishag meted out, but the town of Judge's Rest was no more. A sad but cautionary tale. And sort of exciting too. I quite, quite like that one. It had uh, plenty of action. It's a sort of vehicle for some sort of star in the like, a Matt Damon or a Tom Cruise or something like that. But I wouldn't trust their Australian accents. <laughs> it's it's amazing how those some of those vibrant, thriving communities just faded away to nothing. Indeed, and it leaves ghost towns out there all the more material for us to delve into and we must actually go on a bit of a tour someday out out into the countryside, do some digging of a literal sort. Absolutely, good idea. Stephen, it's, it's an excellent episode so far today. So what have you got to roll out for us next? Well, I'd like to complete my additions to this episode with Huey McBain. Huey McBain was born in 1899. Little is known about McBain's early years, and Huey isn't telling. It's known that he lived for a time in Fremantle, Western Australia, and that he took a ship out of that port. It is thought he arrived in Sydney in 1915, as that is when the first mention of McBain was made. Fired with patriotic fervour, the underaged Huey signed up to, and I quote, teach the Hun a thing or two about what Aussies are made of. End quote. Apparently, he believed the best way to do this was through a process of show and tell. He was shot as soon as he arrived at the Somme. Upon recovering from this, he was transferred to Ypres, where he was shot as he got off the train. Huey McBain was wounded at every major battlefield in the French theatre of war. It was churlishly suggested after his 15th visit to the field hospital that surely the Huns know what Huey is made of by now. But McBain was not to be dissuaded from taking it up to the Hun in Turkey. It was explained to Huey that there were mostly Turks in Turkey, but he was sent there anyway. Much has been written about how much Aussie blood was spilt on the on the beaches of Turkey. But Huey was to add his own pipe and a half when he was shot as he got off the boat. He was shot again as he was loaded onto a stretcher, and yet again as he was being operated on. The military authorities knew they had a problem on their hands when he was shot yet again when he was 50 miles from any known enemy. 
it seemed a stray bullet just kept on going until it found him. Huey soon found himself something of an outcast, as no other soldier was willing to be anywhere near him for fear of catching a stray bullet. It was pointed out to them that Huey was usually the one who got all the stray bullets, but it was to no avail. It was then decided to use Huey's strange ability, and on the morning of the 11th of May 1917, he was sent to the small town of Nespa in France. Immediately, there was a sudden build-up in the German defences of the town, which allowed the joint British and Australian forces gathered some 90 miles away to attack their real objective with no casualties. Huey, decoy McBain, was instrumental in winning the war. Upon his return to Australia, he decided to travel the world. He survived these sojourns relatively well, only receiving 19 leg wounds and a few cuts and abrasions. 1934 found Huey in Spain. After recovering and desperate to get away from the Spanish Civil War, Huey travelled to Czechoslovakia in 1938. From there, he fled to Poland in 1939. He then crossed the Channel and stayed in London until 1944. Huey next turned up in Germany, of all places, and was staying in Dresden when he finally decided to get out of Europe altogether, and he made his way to Japan. Following his narrow escape there, with only superficial radiation burns, Huey set out to broaden his horizons. His travels included Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, Chile, and the Balkans. Huey McBain is perhaps least remembered for his series of poorly selling books, Nurses I Have Known, Great Hospitals of the World, Why Do People Keep Shooting at Me, and Ouch, That Hurt. And he uh, concluded this series of, of books with My World and You're Welcome to It. The occasion of Huey's 100th birthday saw him honoured by a telegram from Queen Elizabeth, which nearly cost him his life as he sliced and ar- opened an artery on the envelope as he opened it. Huey spent the rest of his life in relative obscurity, having retired to see out his golden years in a small town in East Timor. Nice one, Stephen, nice one. While you were telling us about Huey McBain, I actually got the dictionary out and I was looking up the term accident prone and it just said Huey McBain. (laughs) He, He certainly made his mark and had a lot of things make their mark on him. And I understand we've we've another set of brothers to have a look at, Michael. Yep, I'm right into the sibling stuff in this episode, Stephen, and it is the McClintock brothers. And I'm really pleased to be able to bring this one to light because these are the sorts of people who just don't deserve to be forgotten. The McClintock brothers, Angus, Fergus and Sinbad, were bold trailblazers in the area of Australo-Scottish winemaking. They founded a dynasty that lasted until Sinbad's grandson, Caractacus, was finally arrested and deported in 1962 for his part in the great goat ring-in scandal. The McClintock brothers left Scotland for Australia in 1860 in search of gold, like many others, leaving a life of petty thievery and violence temporarily behind. Unfortunately, none of the three had any idea of mining or panning techniques, nor indeed had any of them actually seen gold. As a result, they compiled an impressive hoard of assorted pebbles and stones in the months after their arrival in Australia. After some time of this futile pursuit, the brothers found themselves in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales. It was here that Fergus McClintock suggested that they go into wine. 
Fergus had had some experience with wine, having stolen a bottle from a French boarding house companion, Emile Leclerc, in 1852. Angus, on the other hand, was a canny bookkeeper, admirably suited to running a business, while Sinbad had a knack for horticulture, raising the only known fruit-bearing banana plant north of Glasgow. Between them, they decided that they had the requisite winemaking, viticultural and business skills to start a successful vineyard and winery. Sadly, each of the brothers saw things differently. Fergus ignored his expertise with wine and instead expressed a yen for the fast life of the cash book and the journal. Angus was tired of ledgers and invoices and confessed that he had always wanted to try his hand at growing things, despite a total inability to distinguish between animal and vegetable, as shown by his annoyance when Brussels sprouts wouldn't come when he called them. Sinbad was happy with his brother's changes in direction as he admitted that he'd always hankered to take things, crush them and put the result away in dark places and that he was glad of the opportunity to do it out in the open. The result was an unmitigated fiasco, like a haggis cooked by a grant-funded workshop. The vines perished, the money disappeared and Sinbad spent all his time looking for pictures of grapes so he'd know what he had to deal with when they finally arrived at the makeshift winery he'd erected. But the McClintock brothers were nothing if not stupid. They persevered despite their total unsuitability for the task at hand. Finally, in 1880, after 13 unsuccessful years, which they only managed to survive thanks to a combination of Fergus's astrologically influenced accountancy system and an outstandingly gullible bank manager, Angus managed to provide what could only loosely be described as grapes. Sinbad was so stunned by this event that he immediately went and got drunk for three weeks. At the end of this monumental bender, the entire grape harvest was ruined, Angus having left it out in the rain. A year and a severe beating later, Sinbad managed to handle the next crop of grapes and produce a liquid that he bottled. The following year, 1882, he went one step better and placed corks in the bottles. Unhappily, it was then up to Fergus to sell the wine. Fergus reasoned that his job was to make money, and so after a brief flirtation with counterfeiting, he decided to sell the McClintock Brothers wine for the unprecedented price of £22 a bottle. As a marketing ploy, it ranked with the Acme Ice Company sponsoring of the Titanic's maiden voyage. Not one bottle of wine was sold. After a board meeting, where his brothers belaboured him with large heavy boards, Fergus McClintock sold the entire 1882 vintage to an eccentric collector of oddities, who is intrigued by the red crayon label. The McClintock brothers managed to clear £3.10, shillings, a sum profit of 15 years of winemaking. This was enough to convince even them of the futility of their dream. With heavy hearts, they turned their energies to their more natural pursuits of larceny and mayhem, eventually working their way to the top of their chosen profession, the New South Wales Parliament. A single bottle of the sole McClintock Brothers vintage was accidentally discovered in a hidden basement in Lithgow, New South Wales, in 1958, but the demolition engineer wisely buried it again. Ah, the heady world of the grape. And that's all we've got time for, listeners. Apocryphal Australia has brought you a bumper episode. So it's goodbye from me, Michael Pryor. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen Higgins. 
You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?